0: Welcome to VCR, a Vintage Cinema Rewind. We're bringing old movies to new viewers. I'm Blake. And I'm Michael. And we're here for revenge in part two of Cape Fear.
1: <laughs> we're back with a vengeance.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's been 14 hours, minutes, seconds since we last talked. And uh, I'm, I'm ready to get my revenge on you and your entire family, Michael.
1: Okay, well, wow, that's
0: aggressive. <laughs> I guess <laughs> I Guess
1: when me and my mom come to your wedding, that that's the time. <laughs> yep. You want to knock us all out with one fell swoop.
0: I'm playing the long con.
1: I guess so. I respect that.
0: <laughs> so this is part two of our discussion of 1991's Cape Fear, a remake from the one of the greatest directors of all time, Martin Scorsese, starring one of the greatest actors of all time, Robert De Niro. And Hey, here's a
1: question that I forgot to ask you in our last episode. Yep. Have you seen the original?
0: I have not, and I think that we should do it on this podcast. At some point. I think point. we
1: should too. It would almost, you know, if we had, if we weren't doing Directors Month, it would almost be beneficial to do it right after this. Yeah,
0: I I think this is one we maybe re- revisit next year, mm. in, in maybe our crime or our horror slot. But I again, and this is because. And maybe, you know what, maybe this is a good point to talk because we're into the deep dive, the spoiler discussion. Yeah,
1: spoilers. Go watch the movie. (laughs)
0: Uh, Maybe this is a good time to compare and contrast the the source material. Mm. The original novel came out in 1957. It's called The Executioners by John D. MacDonald. And then that was adapted in 1962 into Cape Fear, which then was remade by Scorsese in 91.
1: Also called Cape Fear.
0: Also called Cape Fear. And what's really cool is uh, actually I, I when I was doing my research on this, uh, if you go to the Executioner's Wikipedia page, there's a really good chart of all three different works and, and a chart of the differences between each of the the film as well as the 1962 film and the Executioner's. I am pulling that up
1: right now.
0: Yeah, it's it's really cool. I would highly recommend you go check it out. What's really interesting is each film kind of becomes, in a way, a product of its time. Mm. Where, as in uh, The Executioners, Katie was a rapist who raped somebody during World War II. And Bowdoin was actually a witness to that rape at that time. There was a larger family there. There wasn't. Uh, Sam wasn't cheating on his wife. There's, there's some differences in, in how the film's trajectory goes. There's, there's a lot of differences even to the level of violence and, and tension in the book. And then the subsequent film and, and Scorsese's film. Like Scorsese's film, film is much more aggressive and violent and rapey than the other two original uh, novel and, and film.
1: Yeah, I'm actually I'm scrolling through the Wikipedia page right now, and you're right.
0: Yeah, it's it's really cool, eh? Like it's it's a really cool comparison. I I'd never seen uh, a nice succinct differences uh, laid out in this in this way.
1: Hmm. Wow. They should do this for all uh, adaptations. Just a nice chart, just to be like, here's what here's what we kept, here's what we changed, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: And and you know what? The one thing that I do want to note in in this this list here is actually basically how max katie and sam Bowden are connected because in the 1991 cape fear the one that we're talking about now Bowden was a defense attorney at the time and he basically buries a report that potentially could have exonerated katie that the rape victim was sexually promiscuous Ooh. which which is funny because so in in the cape fear from 1962 he was actually witnessed the rape and then textifies against katie and and it's kind of similar ish to the executioners as well mm-hmm. and what i what i find really interesting about these is that the 1991 the reason why katie and bowden kind of have this uh contention with each other i find that sexual promiscuity like that's really dated almost at this point in time. Like, it's it's really strange. And and maybe this is also me coming in from a modern audience perspective, right? Like, again, it's like, well, you know, Sam was maybe, like, A, if, if the law cared about that, then Sam is probably justified in not, like, <laughs> making that a part of their case. Like, this Max Katie guy is, is a monster.
1: I think I read somewhere that actually in the 70s, they passed legislation that said you're not allowed to bring up the the you're not allowed to bring up the victim's sexual history in a case like this right so maybe in the 1960s movie that would have made more sense but in the 90s version it's a little yeah dated, i guess well and I, I mean
0: it's so this is and this is 14 years prior right so this does right. the original crime does take place in the 70s so
1: That's a good point, actually.
0: Yeah, so maybe at that point in time, it does kind of make sense. But it just, as a modern audience watching it, it did jump out as me as feeling, like, somewhat unrealistic and dated at this point in time. Well,
1: I don't know that I'd agree that it's unrealistic, but I think it does kind of tie into a larger theme in the movie of just how incompetent the legal system can be. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, it just shows, like, you know... It just shows how completely ineffectual and how easy it is to, for a guy like Max Katie to exploit.
0: Oh, easily. And that actually kind of segues into a maybe a good discussion that I wanted to talk about. And that's the, the really horrifying rape and assault of Lori. Mm-hmm. Sam's potential extramarital affair, potentially cheating on his spouse with... It starts off in the film and he's like, Oh, I don't want to cheat, but you know, you and I are having a lot of fun together kind of thing.
1: So the the deal is is that she's a clerk at his office and like they're hanging out and it's clearly extremely flirty. Yeah. But it doesn't sound like it's gotten physical yet. Mm -hmm. But we also kind of find out that he has had extramarital affairs in the past when they lived in like Atlanta or something. Right. So He's clearly, he's clearly, he's clearly, uh, it's clearly not cool, whatever it is.
0: And, and this is actually the reason why I wanted to bring this up and, and in relation to the, the, the legal system, when Sam goes and visits her in the hospital and he realizes that she was the one who was assaulted by Katie and, and Katie specifically has picked her out to torture Sam, um, and to Mm -hmm. put Sam on again, to put Sam on trial, she she refuses to testify because she's so afraid of Max Cady and afraid of the ineptitude of the legal system. She's afraid of having to stand in front of her peers and explain... The public
1: humiliation. Yeah, the public yeah.
0: humiliation of it. And, like, that felt really sincere and, and very sad. Like, it...
1: uncomfortably comfortably sincere, yeah. Yeah,
0: like, it, it felt so earnest to, to current society. Like, I think that this maybe coming in at it from a male perspective I think that it it might present something that you might not have thought as hard about as 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 a male
1: yeah which you know she has this line where she's like I don't want to have to explain what I was drinking I don't have to ex- want to have to explain where I was mm-hmm. I don't have want to have to explain what I was wearing like I don't want to have to like, deal with those guys like i don't want to have to confront those guys who cross-examine the witnesses and then go and laugh about it after like exactly yeah it's very sad it's heartbreaking it's almost the most gut-wrenching scene in the whole movie
0: i agree like it yeah that one that one i really struggled with and and you know i i really reflected on that for a, a long time because it, it was a perspective that you know it's it's something that obviously you're made aware of uh, and you're made aware of like some of the injustices in the world. But I think this is maybe one of the best and most earnest portrayals of, of that type of injustice that I've ever seen portrayed in film before.
1: You know what it was? It was sobering. Yes. Like you're just like,
0: like Mm -hmm. I need a drink. (laughs) Oh, easily. Maybe, maybe we'll move into, how comically inept the law felt throughout this film. Like, mm-hmm. like there's so many times where the law is basically just like, "Ah, oh, we can't help you. He isn't really doing anything. You mm-hmm. know, like there's, there's nothing legal, legal happening, even though it's like, I would hope that the police would be like, you know what? He has a connection to you. He's done some pretty horrible things in the past. Let's, let's go like knock on a few. This thing.
1: is probably probable cause, right? Yeah. Well, there's, Early in the movie, Max Katie poisons the family dog. Right, And they bring him, they bring everybody, they bring Katie and Sam Bowden down to the station. And Sam Bowden is privately talking to the detective. And the detective's like, so he stole the dog? And he's like, well, no, he didn't steal the dog. It's like, so he was in the house. He broke into the house. He's like, well, no, I don't really, he didn't really break into the house. And he's like, I don't really know exactly how he did it, but I know he did it. And the police detective is immediately like, hey, man, you're a lawyer. You know there's nothing I can do here, right? right? You know what I mean? It's like, okay, drop it, let him go, like, all this stuff.
0: Right, and that leads to a really interesting point in the film as well when the police chief says without saying, essentially, like, it, it, you might have to take the law into your own hands here.
1: There's that. Yeah, it's that great scene where, what does he say specifically? It's like, well, you know, like, if it were me, like, maybe... He says he almost like kinda like encourages him to get a gun. He's like Right. What are you saying? he's like, you're saying I should blow his head off? And then the detective's like, Hey, like, I'm an officer of the law. It would be really irresponsible of me to recommend someone take the law out of their own Mm -hmm. hands. I'm sorry if you misunderstood me that he walks away.
0: Right, right. (laughs) Like, yeah. That's a highlight like discussion for me as well in the film.
1: So good. And then I want to talk about the private investigator, because he was he was one of my favorite characters, but he was also, like, extremely ineffectual the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know. Also, he drinks Pepto-Bismol in scotch, which <laughs> I guess, like...
0: Well, okay, so I was rewatching the scene earlier where uh, he's murdered... And he actually, because, you know, because I've already seen the scene now and I actually get to pay attention because I'm not like just sitting there in an absolute panic at what's happening. Mm-hmm. I actually was listening to what he was saying instead of trying to figure out what was about to happen. And he, he mixes his Pepto-Bismol and Scotch and he says, actually, this is like what I was taught on the force is like my late night, my late night stalking or uh, uh, whatever it's called, drink.
1: I think what he says is my dad used to drink this when he was on stakeout. Yeah,
0: stakeout, yes.
1: The movie kind of implies that this guy either wasn't good enough to stay on the force or he wasn't good enough to get on the force in the first place.
0: Yes, and that's really, really great about the film is that Max Katie makes it personal for him too. Max Katie mm-hmm. is just so good at getting under the skin of each and every person in this movie. It's, it's fantastic. The only person mm-hmm. that he doesn't get under the skin of until the very end is Danielle. And this is where, you know, we get that really, really oh, grimy scene with Danielle and Max down in the auditorium alone in the the basement of the school. And you don't know what's going to happen. That whole
1: thing was so grody. Yeah.
0: And what's really cool about that scene is that it was all filmed in one take with two different cameras being shot. Really? And that was their first take at doing that together as well. And it's again, it's because... Robert De Niro is such a charming person that for this brief moment in the film, he turns back the like psychotic tendencies of him, even though you know that's what he is, but he's just so damn charming. He's just so like damn charismatic that like, you know, you're kind of like getting taken for a ride with him. <laughs> I don't know.
1: The whole staging of it too. So like the deal is Danielle goes into this empty auditorium it's like an empty theater and there's the set on stage is the gingerbread house from Hansel and Gretel. Right. And then he walks out of it. I'm like, fuck. Like, yeah. Oh no. And then what does he even say? Like, she says like, who are you? And he's like, I'm the big bad wolf or something. Mm-hmm. Like, you're just like, no, get out of there. And then, and,
0: and so Jess is like, like freaking out at this point because she's like, oh my God, like he's going to rape her or something. And I was like, I think he's going to do something more sinister. I think he's going to like, you know twist her into you know falling for him and and mm. furthering to ruin sam's life and and drive that further that wedge in his family
1: yeah like the whole thing like like i said before the way he goes about ruining sam's life like he deliberately targets his mistress he kills his dog and then i like and then he's seducing his daughter i'm like oh <laughs> jeez, like yeah what else can this guy do? Like he's just like it's crazy.
0: Mhm. It truly is crazy and like that's one of the highlight scenes of the film. Both uh Robert De Niro and Juliet Lewis were nominated for Oscars from this for this film for best supporting and best uh best leading performance. They both absolutely deserve it although what I'll say is that like the best supporting actress nomination to Juliet Lewis replying Danielle is is almost creepy in a sense but also very Hollywood to to try to or to give an award or nominate somebody for an award for playing like a very innocent person who who gets like caught up in this this very gross relationship
1: yeah like there's a great scene later on where like the dad Sam confronts her about Max and she kind of like she kind of giggles like a schoolgirl. Mm-hmm. And like by this point in the movie, Sam is so like twisted up he kind of physically assaults his daughter and yeah. it's so like it's heartbreaking like the whole thing is just so
0: yeah because Sam like Sam's becoming a monster uh as mm-hmm. well like like Katie is warping his his entire personality and like we find out as as the film goes on, we find out really quickly relatively that Sam isn't necessarily a great person. And maybe Sam tries to outwardly look like a, a saint and a good person, but you know he is cheating on his wife. He has cheated on his wife. Danielle is is quite anxious and and upset about the the relationship of her parents at home. Mm-hmm. He's not the angel that he is potentially shown as at the beginning of the film. It's almost
1: like he wants everyone to think he's Atticus Finch, but behind closed doors, he's like what Atticus Finch was probably like in real life. Right. He's not a a monster either. He's just a little bit of a shithead. Yeah. There's that scene where, like, the him and his wife start fighting, and Julie runs into a room and, like, turns on the TV so she doesn't have to hear it. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you really feel for her in that moment. You're like, fuck. Like, everything is falling down around her. Yeah. There is also that great scene where they have that big fight where Lay finds out about the affair that he's been having yeah and they have this big fight where they like rehash a bunch of stuff and she basically says well why didn't you just leave me if you didn't want to be with me and he calls out like about how depressed she was at one point and how he was scared to leave her and she's basically it's almost like my favorite line in the whole movie where she's like what did you think i was gonna kill myself over you right (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) so good
0: yeah it definitely paints a very interesting portrait of who sam Bowden is
1: And I do think Nick Nolte really brought home just how, like, as the movie goes on, like, he becomes increasingly more disheveled. Mm -hmm. Like, he starts smoking. And, like, during the final showdown, he looks just as, like, bloody and, like, torn up as Max Cady does. Yeah. There is almost kind of like a Cain and Abel type thing where they're almost, like... You know, at, at certain points Katie says kind of facetiously like, "Oh, I guess I'm a lawyer now too. We're just two lawyers kind of talking shop." And by the end of the movie, you're kind of like, these guys are kind of they're both kind of monsters in their own way.
0: Yeah. I definitely. mean, Katie is
1: objectively the worst person, but like Yeah. I don't know. That scene at the end when like they're fighting and like um Sam picks up a rock, I'm like, "Oh, wow, like we're really going for it." Like, mm-hmm. you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, that was some old school, like Old Testament stuff, right there.
1: Yeah, that's some real canaan bullshit. Like, yeah, and then like he just scream There's this part where he like grabs a big rock and he's just like, "I'm gonna kill you!" <laughs> Whoa, dude, you're a lawyer.
0: <laughs> part of what I like about this film too is how Max Katie uses the law against Sam as well, mm-hmm. right? Like. Did you did you think that it was suspicious in the diner when Sam goes to basically threaten uh, Max or warn Max that if he doesn't skip town that he's that somebody's gonna come and rough him up? Did, did it cross your mind that he might be wearing a wire at that point in time?
1: You know it didn't, but when it did happen, I was like, okay, <laughs> I
0: so I, <laughs> I caught it. Yeah. I caught it because. Uh, while while Max and him are standing there having that discussion, Max said, "Would you mind saying that again?" And I was like, oh, "He's God. wearing the wire right now." I was like, "Dude, genius!" And like, it, it was it was just such a such a little detail that like I I picked up on and I really appreciated. It. And then it came full circle. And then like you know like he he literally uses the law against him to get a restraining order, like to get Sam against him. Yeah, and
1: it's so yeah. Not a, okay. He killed his dog he's seducing his daughter he beat up his mistress and now he's getting charges pressed against him there's that great scene where um sam goes to call like the best criminal lawyer in town and the criminal is like oh actually max katie has already retained my services so yeah you know and then like he goes that same lawyer represents max katie against sam for an assault charge and he's just like oh judge you have the wisdom of solomon (laughs) it's just so it's very like oh my god like Mm. you do kind of feel for sam during those moments you're like your life is over dude
0: yeah yeah he's twisted this in such a way that like how do you how do you win this uh Mm -hmm. but you know like and that's the thing is is max the thing with max and and him being a, a, a psycho is that he is is that Max would never stop. Max would never stop until his life was ruined, but Max would always take it one step too far and eventually go for the kill. And that's what we see later yeah. on in the film, right? And that's where we get the the title of the film, Cape Fear. Mm. When they go to Cape Fear, which is at an actual location, I believe in North Carolina.
1: Is Cape Fear a real place? It is
0: a real place.
1: Why would anyone ever go to Cape Fear? That's <laughs> like going to like Mount Death or like... <laughs> Lake Acid,
0: yeah, like, and so what's actually funny is Cape Fear actually isn't a location, I don't believe, in the original novel. And it was the director of the 1962 version where he was basically trying to come up with a title because he didn't like the title of the X ex- called The Executioners. He wanted to come up with a good title that would hook audiences, and he, his thought process was if I find a really interesting sounding location, that movies like this tend to do very well. Um, and that's so that's- kind of clever,
1: actually. Yeah, yeah,
0: so so that's why he settled on the name of Cape Fear and why the the last part of uh, the film takes place there.
1: Interesting.
0: I gotta say, like, how iconic of, of an ending is that, like, this battle in this, like, crazy storm in a houseboat in the middle of nowhere, like, there's nobody coming to help you. It's a pretty epic final act to the film.
1: Can I... I do have one complaint about the movie mm-hmm. and it comes into play in the final act. Mm-hmm. Can I get into yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, go for I don't it. Know, I don't know if you're going to like this, but I'm just going to say it. I think during the last 20 minutes, I kind of stopped liking Robert De Niro's acting.
0: Interesting. You know I, mean? it-
1: I thought he was hamming it up a little too much at the end hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. there's that final shot where like he gets handcuffed to a post and like he starts drowning and as he's oh, drowning he's evil like
0: evil look or, like, or sho- yeah the shouting incoherently
1: he's shouting like incoherently and he starts like singing this song i was a little like okay robbie like bring it down buddy yeah like, so he
0: was what he was actually shouting was he was speaking in tongues and basically like what he was saying uh was he was talking about like his his ascent into heaven at that point in time. Okay,
1: so he was speaking like another language or something?
0: Yeah, like in like some sort of like biblical kind of language about about his ascension into heaven at, because he's he's like in his eyes, he's this godlike figure. You know, he became more than human. That's one of my favorite quotes in the whole movie is is when yeah. he's talking about. He's like, you know, in prison, those 14 years, I was surrounded by people who were less than human. And while I was in there, I decided to become more than human. Yeah. And it's... Yeah. And, and that's like... You know there's some determination in there that that's really interesting about the character of max is is you know how how much this this idea of vengeance on somebody and and deciding his vengeance rests with sam
1: it's hard kind of not to like katie in the respect that the sense that like he basically built himself up from nothing out of pure spite yes <laughs> you know what i mean like It turns out he's, like, when we are told that 14 years ago he was this illiterate jackass, but, like, it turns out he's actually a frighteningly intelligent guy once he applies himself. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? And all it took was
0: was this pure like, need for vengeance. Pure
1: vengeance. So let that be a lesson to any of the young people watching this. If you ever want to better yourself, just use vengeance as fuel. All
0: you need is a mortal enemy, and Michael or I could be that person for you. Yeah,
1: I would be happy to be your mortal enemy.
0: <laughs> Subscribe to our Patreon, which doesn't exist. And, and Yeah,
1: exactly. I won't consider myself successful until I have a mortal enemy,
0: but... The premium tier is just you become a mortal enemy of uh, <laughs> yeah, one of us. Basically. So... No, but there's that scene where, like,
1: those three thugs try to rough him up, and he kicks the shit out of all three of them, and he basically says, like, what does he say? Like, he starts basically, like, I don't remember specifically what he says, but he starts, like, raving about how, like, he's become almost like a god, and, like, you know, it takes more than pain to, like, you know, what does he say? He has that line where he's, like, takes more than, like, a sock to the guts to keep me down. Like
0: Right. Yeah, oh, man, that was such a great scene, too, because, like, you weren't sure if he was going to end up finding Sam or what he was going to do to Sam yeah. in that moment. And he just uh, like he just walks away and he's like, ah, it's not worth it. I'll get you later. <laughs> it's kind just of like, thing.
1: yeah, fuck it. And what he basically says, he's like, it doesn't really matter anyway. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, it doesn't change my plans. No.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was, oh, yeah. That was, that was a highlight scene for me in the film.
1: By the way, remember how in our last episode I mentioned there was one moment, a very innocuous moment early on where i was like oh come on no that's terrible and i right. knew it would come back later right it's early i think after um his sort of mistress has just been assaulted
0: mm-hmm.
1: um sam is playing the piano and he's like oh like the chord is missing as soon as he said the piano chord is missing i'm like no oh i come never on.
0: noticed that
1: i was like no and then oh. later on he uses the piano cord to kill yeah the world's worst private detective
0: right that's, oh my god, I never, I didn't even catch on to that until just now, but you're right, and so my thing was, like, the, with the, uh, like, uh, him wearing the wire, basically, and
1: Oh, okay, that was your moment, yeah, okay That was my we both had We both had different moments where we're like, oh, shit Did, like- did
0: you know before Katie turned around that he was uh, dressed as their housekeeper? I kind of I had a suspicion where I was like, eh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another moment where I was like, that's a
1: little ridiculous, but okay, like, da, I get it. Na, <laughs> yeah, <na. laughs> yeah. It's almost like Heath Ledger's Joker dresses the nurse <laughs> <Yeah>. in <laughs> The Dark Knight, where you're just like, eh, like, all right, like, yeah, he can sort of pull it off. You know what? Also, I bet like- you
0: that is a callback to this movie. I, I would almost like guarantee it.
1: As soon as they said, like, the private detective was like, oh, well, Gabriela, they have this, like, Mexican nanny. They're like, oh, well, Gabriella has to spay the night. As soon as they said that, I'm like, yeah, like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) she's gonna die. Unfortunately. And I mentioned earlier a moment I, like, laughed out loud, like, kind of bitterly. Yep. It's when they find the dead private investigator oh and and he
0: falls in the blood (laughs) he slips in the
1: blood and then he runs out and he just starts shooting blindly into the dark yeah like yeah that was a "Ah." great scene Yeah.
0: yeah 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 crazy we were talking about robert de niro's performance i do want to say quickly like the accent that he puts on is like i guess he did it for an earlier movie that southern accent but oh really it's kind of incredible like i i would have never it's a good did... accent yeah it's believable it's so believable and the, the way he was able to do that is like i said he had already uh played a, a southerner for uh, a prior film but what he did was he took he took the script of this and he went down into the the southern states and asked like locals to read lines from the movie for him, um, and he'd record those and then like practice saying it like they did.
1: Wow, I can imagine you're like a uh, like a corn farmer in like the deep south, and Robert De Niro shows up. He's like, "Can you just read this out loud for me?" <laughs> and then he records. He's like, "Okay, thanks." So then, a couple years later, he's in this movie. You're like, "What?"
0: <laughs> I mean, so... I like you gotta love his his. Uh... His style of acting, or his uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like method acting? Well, he's not necessarily. I wouldn't say that's necessarily method acting, but like his commitment. Yeah, his commitment to acting.
1: I think I uh, speaking of commitment. I think I read that he spent like twenty thousand dollars to get his teeth a little fucked up
0: for the role. So he spent five thousand dollars getting his teeth messed up, and then he spent twenty grand having get them fixed again afterwards he basically he went to a dentist and like he was like five grand I want you to mess my teeth up for this role and on that note as well like the tattoos were actually real tattoos with vegetable dye though like he would have actually gone through the whole tattoo process and then over time because it's just vegetable dye it actually faded and those tattoos went away but like think of the commitment to sit in a tattoo chair for that long and get all of those tattoos because he had a lot I didn't realize you could do temporary tattoos like that I can't imagine that too many people would go through that process, that painstaking process of getting that done, but mm-hmm. you know, it's it's Robert De Niro, so <laughs> I guess so. I will say, like, you know, I've never really been an acting guy in the
1: sense where like I'm more interested in like the story and like the directing and mm-hmm. stuff than I am in the performances. But like watching this movie, I was kinda like, you know, De Niro's a pretty he's definitely one
0: of the greats. You know? Oh, absolutely. He's he's one of my favorite actors of all time, and he's objectively one of the greatest actors of all time. I once uh, I once looked up his net worth compared to to Al Pacino's, and it eclipses Al Pacino like ten to one almost. Like it is, it was pretty wild. De Niro is is a very wealthy man. I wouldn't doubt it. It's pretty funny. So there's two unbelievable moments in this film for me that were like almost like there was the the one was actually worse than the other early in the film when he pays for the ice cream i was like how did he know they were that they were going yeah. to that ice cream <laughs> store? that one that one took yeah, me out for yeah, a yeah. second but the other one that was like it was almost funny uh how ridiculous it was is max uh having strapped himself and holding on to the bottom of the car for what would have been probably hours and it's funny because that's one of the most iconic scenes in the whole movie right but yeah it's it's just so ridiculous but at that point like i didn't care i just laughed because it was so it was so ridiculous but i did like this small touch of like uh, his his uh shirt being burned from the road um and Mm -hmm. having the holes and then his his elbows being kind of bloody from from hitting the road and stuff but there's no Mm -hmm. way he wouldn't be dead after that kind of a trip there's a great
1: scene where like he crawls out from under the car and like he has his had his belt around right. suspension or something and he crawls out and he just he makes like eye contact with like the uh, elderly neighbor and he just very calmly throws the belt in the garbage and walks into the bathroom yeah. to clean himself up.
0: Yeah, I had a good laugh at that moment. uh, for
1: sure. But at the same time, you kind of believe that if anyone could pull that off, it would be this character. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. You know what I mean? Yeah, because he's more than human. <laughs> he's more than human. <laughs> Jesus. And then that make that leads to like one of the funniest Simpsons parodies, where like, you know, Homer's like, "Hey, kids, do you want to drive through the cabbage field? <laughs> 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 so Bob's <Chibab's> like, no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what a great episode. Oh yeah. yeah. like I said, I, st- I remember that episode from like 20 years ago. So moving into effects and filming, Martin Scorsese, you know, this is his month. I wanted to talk about his directing style. This film is kind of almost, even though it's it's incredibly well directed, it's incredibly well shot. It doesn't necessarily feel like a, a typical Martin Scorsese film. And I think part of that is, is A, there's much less voiceover narration um, from the main character's perspectives that you kind of get used to watching movies like goodfellas the wolf of wall street and casino the other thing is is like a lot of those films use montages very well and and this film kind of has none of neither of those um and it's really impressive that because a lot of directors often rely on on kind of their traditional uh filming styles and and directors their their vision to kind of make similar movies in, in sense of tone and 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 the way that they're shot. And this one just it feels like a Martin Scorsese film while also feeling like a, a Hitchcockian film, like a unique film, uh to him, his filmography.
1: I will say this movie was very it had a lot of interesting flourishes. Like um there's lots of like Dutch angles. There's mm-hmm. lots of like there's lots of moments where like the colors almost invert and you're like, wait, what? And right. then yeah yeah
0: yeah and that scene where he wakes up and and he thinks that he sees max in their bedroom yeah and it's like the movie almost takes on like a paranormal aspect in that point in time and and that's just partially because of like how deep max is into sam's head
1: it definitely this is gonna sound weird but it almost felt very like mtv in certain ways like just Mm -hmm. The way it was shot and stuff, I was like, okay, int- I wouldn't have expected this from a Scorsese movie, but right. I'm also not a Scorsese guy, so what do I know? But, I mean, it worked. It worked for the subject matter.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the way that this film came to be, like that, the remake of this, was actually Steven Spielberg was developing the remake of this, and then he, he decided that this was maybe too violent of a film for him, mm. and he actually traded it to Martin Scorsese. Uh, so he gave Martin Scorsese this film in exchange for Schindler's List. Huh. Yeah, one of like Steven Spielberg's like most important films ever. Uh, so it ended up working out quite well in, in Steven Spielberg's favor, but... Yeah,
1: I'll say. Yeah. Also Liam Neeson's favor.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And But what I'll say though is, is so the reason why they ended up trading this is because Steven Spielberg basically said to Martin Scorsese, I really think that, that Cape Fear is going to be a widespread hit like i think that this film has widespread appeal and a film like this could really boost your career as a director and so if you want this like i'll, I'll trade you this uh to to kind of help you in, in your career because the, the film that he had done before this was last temptation of the christ and and that was a really controversial film at the time and, and probably still continues to be a bit of a controversial film based on the subject matter that's with
1: willem dafoe as jesus right correct yes but that's also what's so cool about Martin Scorsese is that he does these gritty gangster films and then every now and then he just throws he throws a fastball at you and you're like, What? Mm-hmm. Okay. Like mm-hmm. so also I guess Steven Spielberg is a really nice guy. He'll just throw projects at you. Yeah. But can you imagine, though, there's a parallel universe where, like, Martin Scorsese directed Schindler's List and Robert De Niro is
0: Oscar Schindler? I mean, I think we're living in the right timeline in that sense, so. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I would like to visit the other timeline just to see it, though. Although what I was thinking earlier at one point, and I didn't say this, was uh, this movie, the paranoia that this movie pulls out of you is, is very similar to Jaws, especially in, like, the scene where they're on the beach and and you think that somebody's going to be eaten and sheriff brody thinks that somebody's going to be eaten and and we're and you and him are kind of looking around to see if if the shark's going to appear or not this film was kind of that scene but for two hours basically like i was like where is max gonna pop out next what is he gonna do to derail the next part of sam's life kidding
1: there's so many moments where you're like, oh come on, <laughs> yeah.
0: And and so Martin Scorsese uh, actually had the script with him while he was making Goodfellas. He read it three times in full and was like, "This is garbage. I don't want to do this." Really? And, yeah. And eventually he came around to it because he he started thinking about it in like the terms of like uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Like it, like he he really wanted to make like a Hitchcockian kind of film and in, in in the the cinematography and and the camera angles that are used. And I think those kind of camera angles are somewhat missing from our movies today. Like I, you don't see a lot of these old style camera angles anymore. Like it's, it's a lot of like the wide shots, the, you know, the, the shots that are supposed to invoke off from you from like big CGI scenes and stuff like that. And, and I, I kind of really miss these, these smaller techniques. There's one
1: scene early on where, um, sam and his wife are in the bathroom talking and it just keeps coming back and with the two of them and it's like his head is like really in the foreground and like her reflection is behind him and then they cut forward to like a reverse shot and i remember just thinking like this is a really interesting way to shoot this scene and like right speaking of which like all the scenes with mirrors like mm-hmm. there's so many mirrors in this movie and it just creates this sense of like duplicity or like you know, duality almost where you're like, Whoa, like there's that scene early on where the wife sits in front of like her, um, like her vanity or something. And there's like four different like reflections of her looking back. It's very striking. And like, yeah, like you don't really see that anymore. I mean, you see that from like more like interesting, like artsy movies, but like, Mm -hmm. you don't really see that from like, you know, your
0: typical Hollywood, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Your big budget films anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Which are which are all action movies now. Pretty much, yeah. So, as much as I,
1: as much as we liked John Wick four, <laughs> mm-hmm. there weren't too many. Anyways, I'm gonna let that joke wither on the line. <laughs> but
0: <laughs> I do. We don't usually talk about like other casting choices here, but there is some very cool ca- potential casting that almost happened. Um, Harrison Ford, Scorsese originally had him in mind for the role of Sam. But Harrison Ford read the script and was like, I'll only do this film if I get to play Max. Ooh. And that was a deal breaker for Martin Scorsese. So Nick Nolte actually really wanted to play the role of Sam Bowden. Like he thought he, he thought he could bring it to that role. Oh, really? Yeah. Which, you know, it's not like, it's not the glory role necessarily in this film.
1: That almost makes me respect Nick Nolte more. The fact that he's like, oh, I can be like the less interesting version. Yeah. No, he, you know, he was, I can do justice to it.
0: Yeah, he was really adamant to take that role on and and convince Scorsese to to give him that role. There
1: was probably a early meeting where Scorsese was like, Are you are you sure you want to play Sam? And Nick Nolte was like, I have spoken.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the role of Max Cady actually almost originally went to Bill Murray in the Steven Spielberg adaptation. sure shut the front door that is so funny <laughs> think of how different of a movie that is though right like it it, it definitely becomes like a more it's two very char- charismatic actors bringing two very different types of performances to the character of Max Katie
1: I love Bill Murray, but that would have been such a
0: mistake. <laughs> it would have like... been more like like Jack Nicholson's Joker than
1: yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good comparison. Yeah, because like...
0: we've been comparing it to mod- like him to modern day Jokers, but he would have been more like like Jack Nicholson, which I mean, in its own right, could have been very entertaining, but.
1: I guess so. (laughs) I'm glad we don't live in that universe. But yeah. Speaking of Bill Murray, we need to do Groundhog Day at some point because that's one of my favorite movies.
0: Yes. We, you know what? Maybe next year's the year to do it. We've talked about it a few times. Actually, funny enough, when Jason and I were originally talking about the ideas uh, that we wanted to maybe do with this podcast, one idea that we had was every year for the the first February episode, we just do Groundhog's Day and we, we, talk about it like the same basically do the same oh like every year
1: it's just like we're talking about it for the first time yeah that's really funny yeah i think we should do that (laughs) yeah
0: maybe next year will be the first year we try that but okay our
1: first groundhog day episode yeah (laughs) i like that a lot that's actually i'm gonna pat i'm gonna fist bump jason when i see him (laughs) that's pretty funny
0: I think I was equally involved in that that idea, but
1: okay, I'll fist bump you too. <laughs> I'm sorry, <It's, laughs> didn't make you mean to make you feel so excluded.
0: Let Let's talk score really quickly. Dun, dun, dun. It's so it's dun, so bombastic. Dun. Like it's such a it's such a great orchestral score for like, a listening the the feeling of making you unsettled throughout the film it just keeps coming back. Right. And it feels like it gets louder and louder as the film goes on. It almost
1: kind of reminded me of like the psycho theme, which I can't actually do off the top of my head, but Mm -hmm. it kind of, I was getting psycho vibes from it.
0: Yeah. And, and again, that's where like the influences of Hitchcock are, are very apparent there. And I believe Scorsese used a collaborator with Hitchcock, uh, to kind of help. Yeah. To kind of help make the, the film. They actually took like the original score, of the original film which again very at that point in time was very heavily influenced on hitchcockian films and they they reworked the the score for for this film but they they tried to almost like ham up the the hitchcockian element to it even more
1: yeah really it's like how intense do you want this score to be it's like yes yeah it's pure paranoia intense yeah yeah Yeah. no 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 no. you know what it kind of reminds me of the shining the shining Mm. score yeah Yeah. that like big wide shot where they're driving through the mountains Mm -hmm. i'm
0: Mm
1: -hmm. like yeah
0: yeah yeah i i very much agree it's 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 great like it's it this is a top tier score for me um and, Mm -hmm. and we've we've already done some very good scores but this one like no other film that we've done like there's been some really great catchy scores that get into my head but this one this one got into my head in a different way I feel like this is one of the
1: few scores that will actually like linger with me yeah. afterwards. Yeah, it, It's rare for that to happen with a score, but I feel like this will be one of them.
0: Mm-hmm. So sequels, prequels, or reboots, we've already talked about this in quite a bit of detail. There's the Simpson episode that we've kind of talked about a little bit and how great of an episode it is. And I I do think I'll probably go back in the next week or two and and rewatch that episode because I might
1: watch it tonight after we get
0: off this recording session. What's really interesting, actually, is I went really deep on this. And so if like let's let's think about this. Uh, in terms of the trajectory of The Executioner. So The Executioner starts as a novel in 1957, is adapted once in 1962, and then is readapted in 1991. Each time we see those comparisons that are laid out really well on the Wikipedia page under The Executioner's. And then The Simpsons, several years later, parodies it, and it becomes a very classic Simpsons episode. So now subsequent to that, actually, in the 2010s, uh, somebody made a play called Mr. Burns, a post-electric play. So it's actually, it has really good reviews. I found a version of it on YouTube that I'm actually going to check out. And basically, the whole premise of the play is about how stories change and are changed by humans over time. And so basically, it's it's a three-part play about the immediate aftermath of an apocalyptic event and the survivors kind of recounting the Simpsons episode of of Cape Fear and then it takes place like 30 years in the future and then it's like you know this traveling group of of performers in this post-apocalyptic wasteland and how the story of of Cape Fear has has changed from there and then at the final act of the film is again them recounting this play in seventy years later and and how it how the story has changed and, and become more and more grand in its scope and, and how it's mixed different stories in in with this story. And I thought that was really cool because in in a sense, like it's it's almost meta in, in the sense that like how the story of Cape Fear has evolved and changed over time and and been remade and, and parodied and and reparodied. And it's just really, really interesting, I think, and and I really want to check that play out. So I have it saved in my watch list now to go to go watch it afterwards. Who would even?
1: I'm just reading the description of this on Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Who would even think to
0: do this? That's actually really cool. It's it's such a genius idea, and and like I yeah. said, it's it it kind of plays on like the folklore of like humans telling stories for thousands of years and how those stories yeah. change and adapt, and and you know how we're telling the same stories only. We're changing them as as time goes on. It's it's such a fascinating idea, and I'm I'm really excited to check the check the play out. So yeah, just just YouTube, uh, Mr. Burns, uh, a post electric play, uh, and, and you can watch it online right now. I,
1: I changed my mind. I may actually watch this after we're done recording. Nice, instead of Cape Fear, or the Cape Fear E, this Simpsons episode. Yeah. Actually, the Simpsons episode aired in 1993, only two years after Cape Fear.
0: Right. Yeah. So it was right. it was definitely like a still still very much in the culture at that point in time. Right. And everyone would have gotten the jokes and and would have really enjoyed a parody like that at that point in time.
1: Interesting. Very
0: interesting. Yeah. So Legacy, we've, we've kind of hammered home a lot of this stuff, honestly, so I'm going to move this through this pretty quickly. I already said that Juliette Lewis and Robert De Niro both nominated for an Oscar. Uh they did and neither of them won the Oscar. Uh so I, I like to point out who who beat them in this year. Uh it was Anthony Hopkins won for Silence of the Lambs over Okay, fair. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One of the most iconic performances of all time. Robert De Niro probably saw
1: that movie and he was like, shit. I'm <laughs> not I'm not going to All these
0: vegetable year. tattoos and teeth reconstruction for nothing. Uh <laughs> That's pretty good. But uh, the fact that he was even nominated is, is pretty impressive, right? Because like a role like that doesn't doesn't necessarily get recognized by the Academy very often. No, definitely not. And then Mercedes Rule actually won in the Fisher King for Best uh, Supporting Actress. Um, and I You know what? I, I haven't seen the Fisher King in like 10 years, but that makes sense. Mm. She did a really good job. I haven't seen that at all. Jason and I have talked about doing that for the podcast at some point in time because... I mean, we haven't even done a Robin Williams movie yet, so.
1: Oh, man, we're missing out. Yeah. You know, it's next year, it's going to be 10 years since we lost him.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. It's sad. Yeah, agreed. So, personal reviews on the partner factor. I am dying to hear what your thoughts on this movie are.
1: I think you kind of already know. So, I didn't watch it with a partner. I watched it by myself, mm-hmm. and uh, I really liked it. I liked it a lot. Sometimes you tell me just, you're like, go watch this. And I'm like, all right. And then I go watch it and I'm like, eh. or I'm like, I either like it or I don't like it. But this has been two absolute bangers after another. Where yeah. I'm just like, I really liked this movie a lot, actually.
0: Yeah, so did I. So like, uh-huh. so did I. And and it's funny because this isn't, I wouldn't say this is in Martin Scorsese's top five films score wise on, on mm-hmm. IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes but it's definitely a very unique one in his filmography and it's one that I really really enjoyed and I guarantee I will come back to it at some point in time.
1: I totally agree. And maybe it's just cuz we're talking about Martin Scorsese the director, mm-hmm. but this is the first Scorsese movie I've seen where I'm like, "Oh, like okay, Martin Scorsese, like I I respect the guy a lot." Mm you know what i mean Mm -hmm. it gave me a greater at least awareness of what he's doing and what a guy like de niro is doing
0: right yeah and how they're working off of each other and feeding off each other Mm -hmm. yeah i i would echo very same review as you like robert de niro's performance is an absolute standout for me on on the flip side of that like Jess actually really hated this movie um, because (laughs) really yes and and like the reason for that is again what I said earlier in the first episode when I was saying that this is a very aggressive film um Mm -hmm. and a very violent film and and that calls back to the the 70s and 80s and and almost like the exploitation kind of films and that's a genre that appeals to sometimes a very niche group of people and and I'm kind of one of those niche group of people and part of that's also because you know like like growing up as a 90s kid like Quentin Tarantino being so important to my understanding of, of movies and and cinema and and his kind of his inspirations draw from these types of movies very often
1: Well and I think it's also just we've talked about how some people watch movies to escape and to feel good yes. And some people want to feel miserable, and I'm one of those people. And like, I am too sometimes, like yeah, uh, like when yeah. I showed
0: you Green Room this weekend, and I was that like, was
1: a really you're really wheeling out all the miserable movies yeah. right now, yeah, which yeah. I respect. But uh, I enjoy the catharsis and like the tension that a movie like this creates. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy it to almost frankly a sickening degree.
0: And like like I said kind of earlier because I have this this relationship with this movie that I've seen the Simpsons and the Sideshow Bob episode is so iconic to me that like it creates this this nostalgia for the 90s even though I'd never seen this movie before that I was yeah. like I was already like very quickly invested in this film and and had good feelings like I, I was almost biased going into this film based on like my past experiences you were all
1: you kind of went in already sold you're we like this is gonna be great
0: yeah but <laughs> it paid it paid
1: off though yeah <laughs> like the movie lived up to your expectations well, which doesn't always happen
0: and and like i'll say this like again like i'm coming from this is the, one of the very few times where i i haven't seen the original before i'm seeing the uh, and this isn't even the original right but like the 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 original from the 90s, its own take on the story um, but I've seen like parodies of this and so a lot of our viewers are gonna come from the same experience of seeing the parodies or seeing like snippets of this film being used and abused in other films and for Use me and yeah and for me I really really I, I almost appreciated it more seeing it in its original form. It from the mastermind of uh martin scorsese
1: straight from the horse's mouth yeah 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 i don't know if i said this before in a previous episode but it's funny how many movies the simpsons has ruined for us
0: yeah just
1: growing <laughs> up with that audience like and I, I i respect it wholeheartedly but like you know and, and- like they spoiled Citizen Kane and the one Mr. Burns episode. Mm-hmm. Like it just the list goes on.
0: But like I said, I I think I appreciated this more even going in. Like I was already somewhat biased and invested in in the movie because I I already knew the connections to prior works that I've seen.
1: By the way, speaking of which, I realized this after the fact. There's an old South Park episode that uh parodied uh Mad Max Fury Road that I realized later. I'm like oh okay like south park was making fun of this oh that's hilarious (laughs) south park was making fun of this before i even knew what this was (laughs) nice that's that's awesome thanks south park thanks simpsons (laughs) what would we do without you guys um
0: probably cry
1: cry a lot more you mean
0: (laughs) yeah um although maybe it's too real now what they predicted in the for what was going to happen in the world And on that dour note... (laughs) Yeah. uh, um, I think that's going to be it for us. So, like I said, this is Martin Scorsese month, so we do have one more Scorsese film to do. We haven't settled on it yet. There's a few different options we've kind of bounced around. Uh, I think you and Jason kind of need to finalize it. Some of the ideas that we're bouncing around right now are like Raging Bull, uh, King of Comedy, Casino, Last Temptation of the Christ, which we mentioned... After hours a comedy a straight comedy from it would I, I'll just
1: say this now mm-hmm. it would be really interesting to see like an unconventional Scorsese movie like a gangster movie or something or not a gangster movie I mean like one of his more like kind of out there projects yeah just I, to showcase like the kind of range that the guy has like even if we, well we can't do hugo because it's post 2000 but yeah,
0: yeah you know and, what I mean? like and and a lot of our a lot of viewers have seen a lot of his um more modern movies especially because like martin scorsese is kind of a guy who's like his films have become more revered over time like like each mm-hmm. it feels like each movie that comes out gets better reviews and and Better and and gets better in terms of direct director style and and who he's working yeah. with over time he's one of the
1: rare creatives who actually gets better i think it's yeah as and, he approaches you know his twilight years instead of worse
0: yeah exactly um like obviously goodfellas is objectively one of his best and in my opinion it is his best but like like we've talked about like the departed and wolf of wall street the irishman like these are all incredible movies that that people really really love to this day yeah definitely so yeah on that note like if if you have a favorite from martin scorsese's earlier part of his career um let us know in the comments if if there's one in particular that you want us to check out
1: yeah sound off down below And like and and subscribe while you're at it. (laughs) Smash the like button! (laughs)
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I think that is going to be it for us. Uh, Until next time.
1: Until next time, um, you know, keep an eye out for any stray piano wires. And
0: um, (laughs) try not to slip in any blood. (laughs) Watch out for potential foreshadowing moments in your life. Yeah,
1: actually, if that's the one advice I could give to any young person, watch out for (laughs) foreshadowing.